to the second episode of Coffee Talk at Godric's Hollow. My name is Manish. And I'm Monica. And today we are going to be discussing... Witches uh, and hoes. Witches and hoes. Witches and hoes. <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, that's the name of J.K. Rowling's upcoming rap album. <laughs> And as I'm sure all of you listened to our first episode, you know that we're the newest and edgiest Harry Potter-themed podcast to come on the scene. For sure, for sure. (laughs) Well, the main focus of today's discussion is going to be feminism and gender roles in in the Harry Potter series. And... There's a couple there's a couple of key areas that we want to address. And a couple of key characters that we want to focus on. Oh yeah, absolutely. One of uh, them including I'm... everybody's favorite Muggleborn, which Hermione Granger. Yeah, Hermione. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but also, um, obviously McGonagall, Molly Weasley. Molly Weasley. But you know, Another one we want to talk about is Narcissa Malfoy. And Bellatrix. Ooh, Bellatrix. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we had to discuss her because, well, I think we should discuss her and Dolores Umbridge together because I think they're the two main female villains in the series. And I think they have a lot to say about, like, women. <laughs> right, well, what we want to try to identify is how are the roles of women in the series different than the roles of men? Yeah. That's, that's one thing we want to fo- want to talk about. We want to look into, uh, some of you might remember that uh, Manish and I are feminists and gender liberationists. <laughs> <laughs> so we want to, we want to figure out if, if this series can be viewed as being gender liberationist literature. Yeah, one of the main questions that we have about it is, does J.K. Rowling play into traditional gender roles, or does she subvert them? Does she try to, like, deconstruct them? Or or basically just how does she use women in this series as opposed to how she uses men? You know, one of the main characters, uh, obviously, is Hermione, uh, a girl who then becomes a woman. And... We sort of consider her to be this very light character, light as in in the spectrum of dark to light, dark being, you evil. know, like a evil Bellatrix, and then light being a, a Hermione, because her moral compass is always pointing north. Yes. <laughs> She's always trying to do the right thing, or trying to get the other characters to do the right thing. And uh, she's always that. She's always the voice of reason when Harry has, whenever Harry has an option to do something that might be seen as reckless or maybe foolish, even she's always the one that says maybe you should step back and think about it. Like in Order of the Phoenix, when he wants to go and rush, rush to the Ministry of Magic to try to save Sirius, she's the one who's saying, "Hey, maybe this is actually a trap." And maybe you shouldn't go. Whereas Harry's like, I have to go. I have to do this. Wait, does she? She does say that, doesn't she? I don't think I, it was in the movie, but okay. I, I, some of you may know. I've been rereading the books, and um, I finished Order of the Phoenix like um, on Monday or on like Sunday, 
And uh, yeah, she, there's a whole like page and a half of her trying to convince Harry that it's a trick and that he should maybe think about it. Wow. Well, we know yeah. that Rowling has said, or Joe has said that she's she uses Hermione as kind of this information dump character because yeah. if there's something that she wants the characters to know, she'll put it through Hermione because she's obviously read whatever book that's out there about it. Hogwarts history. I always wanted to read Hogwarts history. <laughs> It'd be great bedtime reading. Totally. Um, even more than bedtime. I'd read it at work if I could. Uh, but, so we have this We have this girl. She's 11 years old. She's incredibly smart, but incredibly hardworking. So she kind of falls into that typical nerd girl stereotype, right? She has bushy hair. Yeah. Buck, buck teeth. teeth. <laughs> not exactly pretty. She's, like, kind of a know-it-all in that she's off-putting to some people, a.k.a. Ron, because... He's attracted to her. He's strongly... He's attracted to her. Strongly, strongly attracted to her. (laughs) (laughs) But... (laughs) Well... But, no, she flaunts her smartness. You know, she's always kind of showing up. And even even in classes to the professors, she's always raising her hands. She always knows the answer. And it makes me wonder if... Do other people not know the answer, or are they just not as eager <laughs> to please? <laughs> or are they just not as as excited as she is? But I think what you're saying yeah. is that she's not... That maybe she does have a flaw in that case, and that she's, like, uh, what's the term? Insufferable know-it-all, right? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so that's a very basic kind of flaw that she might have. And one that like, she, I think, overcomes as she grows older. Right, well, the I mean, the whole series is about these kids that are growing up, so, yeah. you know, if she didn't, if she didn't grow up, then that would kind of, you know, not, wouldn't really, it wouldn't have been as good as it was. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. of course. So, what, one thing is that Hermione, the descriptions that are used to describe Hermione are very similar to those that are used to describe McGonagall. Yeah, and McGonagall and Molly Weasley. Which which sort of represent these two different uh, archetypes, right? One's like this uh, loving mother. And, and the, the other... Like the stern teacher. Right, stern but noble. Might be a little cold and icy. Ooh, cold and icy. That's Narcissa, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, yeah. But, I mean, McGonagall... You could hardly describe her as a teddy bear. You know, she's very, um, <laughs> she can be very unforgiving at times, but then sometimes she'll show that flash of, like, I want to say coolness, but, I, like, a cool as in, like, hip, you know? I mean, she's, sometimes she shows that flash of, like, um, okay, I might, she's like, okay, I might be a stern person, you know, 97% of the time, but when it comes to, like, Quidditch, when it comes to Dolores Umbridge, I'm actually on your side and will help you, you know, break the rules a little bit. Right, and I guess as as women in this series, they both, well, I guess Hermione and McGonagall, they're, it's just that they're all seen as kind of these separate and strong, hardworking, noble figures. They're very, like, they're not that they're put on pedestals, um, but 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 I think in in describing what it means to be 
a good character. That is that is how they're portrayed. Yeah, I agree with you. And but here's my here's my question to you, and since we're talking about you know gender roles, uh, my question to you is, why does it always have to be the girl who is the voice of reason? and who's always trying to dissuade Harry from doing something foolhardy. You know, like, like, mm-hmm. like, like let's say, like, Ron and Hermione's character types were switched. You know, you had the guy who was really nerdy and a know-it-all and always on the right side, always trying to do the moral thing. And then you had the girl who was, like, reckless and maybe smart but didn't really show her potential. Like, how would that change the series? And why do you think J.K. Rowling made it the way, with, the way it is? Oh, this is going to be good. (laughs) Okay, so... When you think about these characters that we see in films and and read about in books, nobody likes reading about a careless girl. No one likes reading about this um, a flippant or or non-motivated girl. It's, It's almost unacceptable, right? Yeah. It's not something that anybody thinks that is something to be aspired to well i know that people say that they kind of aspire to be that not not okay maybe aspire is the wrong word but that they want to be that goofball guy that funny one the one who's kind of lazy you know they want to be that <laughs> that like seth rogan character in it's funny you bring up seth rogan because just now i thought about all those comedies that have <laughs> these like man child characters you know, like adam sandler or like Jason Siegel or whatever, and they're always paired with these women who are, like, motivated, and I, I mean, I hate the word shrewish, but they're, like, shrewish, and kind of, they're always, like, nagging, and it's like, okay, well, what happens if, you know, what if you just switch that, that, that gender play, you know, what if it's, like, what if it's that girl who is, like, careless, but you're right, well, I think the only time we ever really saw that in, like, a mainstream movie was Bridesmaids, because you had this woman whose life was, you know, she was totally had not grown up yet, totally not mature. And but I mean, I feel that whenever you do have a girl protagonist like that, she always redeems herself. She always learns her lesson. But when does Ron really ever learn the lesson of being, you know, mature and right? You know, because not, even not not so headstrong. The difference between the uptight, stern, shrew shrew girl, and the loose, flowy. Well, actually, no, well, that's another character, a kind of loose, flowy, bohemian girl that's just so, oh, oh yeah, like, yeah. I'm such a, I'm such a free spirit. Zoe know? Deschanel and company. Zoe Deschanel, what's her name on Girls, the, the one with the accent? I can't remember her name. Jessa? Yeah, Jessa. I wear long skirts and don't wash my hair for weeks, but, <laughs> but investment bankers just fall in love with me because I'm so different from them. Yeah, that's called a manic pixie dream girl. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so there's these two there's these two types, right? And there's very few characters that fall in between. There's very few women in literature that fall in between, right? Yeah. Um like Lizzie Bennett can't even can really be identified as as being in between. She's definitely more on the on the opposite side from the loose flowy flower flower girl. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
and someone like Lavender. Well, Lavender's, yeah, I guess she is this kind of manic, manic uh, character. Um, Luna Lovegood also, and Fleur Delacour. Well, well, Fleur is on the, she's like a, how did, how was she described in, um, like, far well, from I guess, being okay. a, she's, she's a, she's a tough, she's a tough girl. Yeah. She's a, she only goes against her, only, her main descriptions are just how beautiful she is. And then when she starts, when she's engaged to Bill Weasley, then nobody really likes her. Right, but she's, she is the character, or she is the one who says, why do I care what he looks like? You yeah. Know, when, when he's, like, scarred and torn apart from that werewolf yeah. fight. But, so she, she fights against the physical stereotypes that are given to her. Um, yeah, that's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. But, but it's just, you don't have this middle ground character. You don't have somebody who's kind of, who's normal. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, like, I want to be able to identify myself as having good humor, but being hardworking. Mm-hmm. Or being, uh, you know, flexible and and having the ability to kind of think outside the box and whatever. Um, but you don't you don't find that you don't see that in in Hermione as much. So I mean, sometimes she does have that random rebellious streak, but only when it comes only when she's absolutely sure that what she's doing is the right thing to do, like the Polyjuice Potion. Like I think that's her and her most rebellious because they they were breaking a lot of school rules. I mean, this potion was it may not have been illegal, but it was highly advanced magic, highly banned at Hogwarts, you know. And, um, but she was willing to make it because she knew that, you know, there had to be a chance, that she knew that they had to listen to Malfoy talking to his friends because that was the only way they could ever figure out if he was the heir of Slytherin. So there are times when I think she's, and and with Dumbledore's army, of course, you know, she, she's the one, that, that's her brainchild, you know, and so, and she knows that's the absolute right thing to do and that rebellion against Umbridge would be better in the long run. But it's only those few times when she has that, that like, rebellious streak, mm-hmm. and she doesn't want to follow the rules and be totally moral and totally, so, but, you know, totally But what you're, what you're kind of starting to say is that because she does these things, that she knows when it's right to break the rules, and she does at that time because she's still yeah. taking the moral high ground at that point, that makes right. her an admirable character, Right. Yeah. That makes her someone that I wanted to be when I was a kid. That you wanted to be when you were a kid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Hermione is always, Hermione's my, my old, like, uh, sorry, Hermione's always been, like, one of my role models. Yeah, so she, so she becomes his role model. And then, but then think about Ron. Think about how people want to be like Ron because he doesn't, it's like, he's just this kind of fun guy, but. But nobody wants to be that. <laughs> nobody be, wants to be the one that gives up. Nobody wants to be the one that leaves their friends in the middle of a forest when there's a witch I would hunt. say the only way I want to be like Ron is in that I want to have a friend like Ron. Ron's a really loyal friend. I mean, there are, I mean, there are times when that loyalty does waver a little. But 
and for the for the most part, he's a very strong, loyal friend. So I want to have a friend like him, but I don't want to be him because he is the weakest of the three. He's, I mean, we talked about this last time, you know. He's not always noble. He's not always taking the high ground, mm-hmm. which makes him more human. But the, I don't want to be human. I want to be, like, superhuman. <laughs> right. I mean, we, we'll get into this in our family episode, but we yeah, identify yeah. a lot with Ron, and that's our problem with him. <laughs> 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 but... But going back to what you had said about how, imagine if Ron and Hermione had been switched in gender, so the Ron character had been a woman, had been a girl. Um, yeah. You know what? I I just wonder. I don't think I would have. I actually don't think I would have liked the series as much because I wouldn't have liked how the the girl was being portrayed, and I wouldn't have liked how she wasn't kind of this this awesome character. Yeah, yeah. And and I don't and and I can get, you know, much farther into sort of you know, why why is it that we don't like seeing goofy women as much? Yeah, I mean it's goofy or um relaxed or <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean it it just sort of um it just, it just has to do with, like, our cultural, national, you know, ideologies about women and their place in society and men and their place in society. You know, I think Roe was so, Roe was, I mean, uh, I, I think it's sort of like a cultural edible complex. You know, Roe was sort of looking for, like, <laughs> maternal figures in female characters. And then, you know, I mean, there's a whole, um, there's a whole, like, Madonna horror complex that some guys have where they like can't they fall in love with women just like their mothers but they can't sleep with them and they can't they can't fall in love with women they sleep with because they see them as like loose you know sexual sinful women so and I I, I think that's part of the reason why we don't really see many like loose like flippant female characters at least as heroes I mean there are like, plenty of side characters who are like right. flippant and mm-hmm. ditzy and goofy and all like Luna Lovegood <laughs> Right. But, yeah. I mean, and even she, even she, sort of proves herself to have some sort of sense of morality. Mm-hmm. I mean, but um, but yes, yeah, so I, I guess maybe we're just looking for female characters who are noble and I guess maternal in a sense. I mean, I definitely sometimes feel that Hermione is like a mother figure. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. She takes care of them like like no other. I mean, how many times do the, do they say themselves? Oh, Hermione, you're so great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She'll let them, you know, copy her essays. She'll let them... She'll make sure that she gets dinner for them some nights. And, and like, um, she's always the one who solves a mystery at the end. Because she's so smart. Three books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, if it weren't for her, then they would never have figured out that it was a basilisk, you know, in the walls. She's the one who found that paper and wrote down pipes. And even then... They, like, struggled so much to, <laughs> to figure it out. Okay, they're, like, 12 years old, all right? They, like, barely Whatever. know how to read. They just learned, like, a couple of years ago. Come on. Give them a break. <laughs> well, okay, I think what you're saying is that it's hard for... It's hard for a, a, a flippant or... 
flowery Lucy girl to have depth. That's true. But yeah. that's that's still a different character than who Ron is. I would never describe Ron, Ron is goofy, but but not but he's still very serious. You know, he's still Yeah, that's true. Right? He's not a he still has a lot of depth. But I just don't think that the series would have been very different had been if it had been a a lazy a lazy girlfriend. Girl and I mean comma friend. You know, and the male friend being, you know, smart and you know, stern and you know, always taking the high ground. I mean I mean that would have been a different it would have been a different dynamic. The three of them would have well, had Well what I think would have happened is if you think about Lord of the Rings and you think about the Fellowship of the Ring, that's all male characters that were in it. Right? right. The and the the two that are kind of considered to be goofy or whatever, they're they're still guys. If they were if they were women they would have been left behind. You know, way yeah. way back when, when the fellowship was first formed. Um <laughs> <laughs> I just think that if you know, if the not as smart uh, character or character like Ron had been a girl, she would have been left behind. It would have just been Harry and Harry and the Ron Hermione character. Yeah, yeah. That would have that would have led the series then. Right. And also, why not make the Harry character a woman? I mean that's well, that's like I have a, a friend who told me that J.K. Rowling decided to make the main character a boy so that it would sell more because you know that old double standard that like female led like pieces of art are marketed only to with girls but mm-hmm. like but like stuff like movies and books and, and shows with a male protagonist are sold to everyone right and I mean well you know what's funny is that I don't think the Hunger Games is is as much is is kind of you know breaking away from that. You do think or you don't? I I think it is. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I I actually have not read I have not read Hunger Games or seen the film. Um, uh, I've seen the movie, and um, I would. I mean, I would say that you have. I mean, there's definitely you definitely have the female protagonist Katniss who, uh, she exhibits as many quote-unquote male qualities as she does female qualities. I mean, if you want to go, like, super, tra- super, tra- super traditional, sorry, <laughs> like, going, like, with, like, you know, the hunter-gatherer, like, the hunter is a male and the gatherer is a female. Mm-hmm. If you want to go through, like, you know, like, feminine beauty and, like, masculine power like, skills. Or, yeah, masculine yeah. power. She exhibits both of them. You know, because the, the one issue that I feel a lot of feminist film critics have about action heroes who are female is that they're basically men, but, like, with, like, a woman's body. Right. So, but I think The Hunger Games and Alias, too, accentuate femininity and also, like, the power. I guess the question is, how how would, what would make the struggle uniquely female? Oh, no. Right? And, yeah. I mean, is there is there something that in kind of, in series like the Potter series and in in series like the Hunger Games where struggles are uniquely female that aren't stereotypical? 
I don't I don't think there there is. We haven't really seen anything I, like that. I think I, in, I'm not really sure what he, what an email juggle would be. I mean, because I mean, you know, like, okay. can you elaborate on that? Right. Also? Sure. Well, when you think about what you know, what is it that that women in society have to have to fight for, and what do they feel like they have to be responsible for? Uh, many women have to be responsible for their families, for their homes, for their children. Right. They have to be the protectors and the love givers in in the lives that they lead, right? Right. And, you know, to have all of that responsibility to feel like you, you have to be the one who's always going to be there. Like, you, you're the first one that your child goes to for nourishment, right? Right. Having that, having that level of responsibility, I think, changes how, changes how women end up viewing everything that they have to accomplish. Not, not okay. just, I think not just because, not just because of the fact that women have to bear children, but yeah. I think that when you're put, when you start your life, you just, you, you see, you know, other women providing a lot of sacrifice. Yeah. Like, consistently. So I think that when, you know, Katniss, from what I understand, she feels that she must she must protect her younger sister, of course. She must provide to her for her family. Yeah. And then interestingly, you know, one tribute has to be a male and one tribute has to be a female. They can't both be male tributes. Or both females. Or both female tributes. So I mean that that's a that's something that that's actually pretty cool. I think. <laughs> um, I think that's saying something about future society. That you know maybe in some maybe some ways eventually the genders will finally be viewed as being equal. Yeah, you know that's interesting. That is a uh, good point you just made there because even I, when I first heard about the Hunger Games, was a little shocked that there was a female tribute, and I hate that about myself because I. I typically don't think like that, but, uh, I, I, well, I think what shocked me was that someone had, like, written that, because I know that, I mean, you and I know that everyone's capable of doing everything. I mean, I could never survive with Hunger Games. That's no, <laughs> please. <push that> <laughs> I would last five seconds, and then I would go back home. My, I battle a real-life Hunger Game every day when I'm driving home from work starving. <laughs> that's yeah. my, that's my level of a Hunger Game. That's exactly. all I can handle. But I, no, what you're what you're saying is that it's it's gender liberationist almost, like radically so. Right. And that I was surprised that that even was out there. That people were in like, and that it was so popular too, because see, there's always a backlash when you have these like quote unquote like feminist, you know, pieces of literature or film. Well, you the know, thing like is Sex and City had a backlash. Girls is having a backlash. You know. All these, all these sort of female-led things have backlash. Everything by Henrik Ibsen has a backlash. <laughs> uh, exactly. Well, well that, okay, so yeah, getting it, being gender liberationists, it's, it's our goal to 
be able to show that that there aren't uniquely female and uniquely female problems. Yeah. Right? That everybody deals with the same crap <laughs> and has to aspire to be the same level of success that they want. Right. That there that there isn't a success for a woman and there isn't success for a man. It has to be the same. So then would you consider like female villains as a symbol of gender gender liberationism? Hmm. Like, Neville has this rivalry against Bellatrix, and Harry has this rivalry against Umbridge, and do you think... So do these female villains, are they feminist, even though they're bad characters who have to be destroyed, or are they just, you know... Or are, there, are their roles in the series simply bending to traditional gender roles? Hmm. Well, what do we, what do we know of... of female villains in in classic literature or in other literature? Um, well, I mean, you have the classic femme fatale character mm-hmm. who is, you know, she's always this beautiful, voluptuous woman who uses her sexuality to destroy the male hero. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, and then there's the, like the sort of psycho villains. <laughs> <laughs> the psycho bitch one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, but, because, well, what I was sort of getting at was, you know, Dolores Umbridge is, I think, one of my favorite characters in the series. People are real surprised when I say that because she's so viciously awful that you can't love her at all. Like, she gets no sympathy at all. Like, there's no, like, Snape is a horrible villain also. I mean, he's turns out to be here on the end, but in, for most of the series, he's a villain. But even he gets moments of where you sympathize with him, and you empathize with him. Like, mainly whenever they talk about James James Potter and Sirius Black in the past. Which, and then, but then um, Dolores Umbridge gets no moment like that. There's no moment where we get to see her, you know, break down and be an actual human being as opposed to some caricature. I mean, there are times when you know, when, towards the end of Order of the Phoenix, when she's losing her power, and she sort of gets taken away by the centaurs, and you know she's probably going to die. You know, yeah, you have those moments, and I guess you, know, she, I guess you could no, feel bad for her at those points, but those are mainly played for like comedic effect. Right, right. It's not a. It's, it's not, not a character moment. Yeah, right. Huh. Uh, well, I think. So I just, hmm. oh, no, no, no. I think what maybe it's it's that. Dolores is a is a kind of a good that's a good I think that's a good example for what we're trying to show or yeah. what we're trying to develop here um, because she's doing her job right right she's doing she's doing her interpretation of her job she's not like Bellatrix in that she has some weird love for her boss like Bellatrix well, does I mean, for you could argue that she has like fetishistic, you know, devotion to Cornelius Fudge. Well, I don't know I mean, maybe not as extreme. I don't know if it's Cornelius Fudge versus it's the minister's role. Yeah. You know, she, she views, you know, the government to be her, like, religion. (laughs) That that's what shall govern her actions. Yeah, yeah. Right? 
And I think her, you know, her having this kind of fluffy exterior. She, like, has cats. She wears a lot of pink. She, you know, is short. She talks like a preschool teacher. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's just, like, weird girlishness that I think she uses as a way to left writing, but has the effect of being, like, a million times more. Frightening. <laughs> um, and we can sort of discuss why, why she thinks that girlishness is less threatening, you know? I mean, why does she have to put on this air of talking like a five-year-old and being, you know, all pink and, you know, cute kittens and, you know, lots of sugar in her tea, all these (laughs) sort of, like, really feminine things. Right. But she uses that as a means of spreading evil, I guess. Yeah, it's it's very different from, uh, from other, you know, vicious female villains that you know, yeah. will wear dark suits and high heels. Yeah, yeah. And, she's, right? It's it's different than a... I mean, she, yeah, she's not some, like, frosty ice cream. Yeah, or that. Which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and I, w- I would say Belchick kind of uses the same thing. I mean, she's not as, like, pink and as pink... Like, she doesn't use pink the same way that, like, like John Bridge does, but she does definitely... Like, she taunts Harry like a baby and, like, puts on this, like, baby voice, you know, and she and she's definitely more, you know, openly psycho. Yeah, than... I mean, what what she's doing is that she's, she's kind of, like, dumbing herself down yeah, yeah, to talk to the people that she's about to torment, right? She's patronizing yeah. them. Almost in, like, a mock paternal voice. Right. I mean, because, well, you and I love Belchick. I mean, we love Belchick the <laughs> yes. same way that we love Andre. Well, the reason why... terrific villain. Is that villains in, in anything occasionally and frequently have much more depth than the heroes. Yeah. I sometimes feel for... I feel for what the, the villains are fighting for. And I get why, you know, some of them are so upset with the heroes. You know, right. that they've been wrong. There's misunderstanding there. And they have conviction. They don't have just some thought that they have to be, that like the heroes typically do, that they have to protect everybody. Yeah, yeah. You know, nobody, nobody handed them that responsibility to a lot of these heroes in series, right? Right. Um, they just feel like they need to do it. Well, a lot of the villains... They feel like that they have to fight against these heroes because the heroes have taken something from them. Especially when you think about the Malfoys. Um, I was wondering if I actually thought that they were evil or if they were just believing in pure blood, like superiority, and if they were just sort of doing whatever they could to maintain that status quo of, you know, magical elitism. You know, and they were just hitching their wagon to Voldemort because he was the only one upholding their agenda. Well, you know, because I don't, I don't really see the Malfoys as inherently evil. Maybe Lucius Malfoy, but no, I not, don't not even Narcissa. him. Not even him. And, not even him. And we yeah. wanted to talk about Narcissa, so I guess we can we can get into it. Yeah, uh, because with Narcissa is a very 
uh, convoluted, complicated character because, yeah, you know, she listens to her husband, she takes care of her son, she sacrifices everything for her son, but then, you know, while we would think that many mothers of wives of Death Eaters and mothers of future Death Eaters would think it a great honor for their son to be personally asked by the Dark Lord to do something. And Bellatrix even says this to her. Narcissa yeah. knows that this is the most terrible thing to ever happen to her family. She knows that the one person that she cares about most deeply, who, which is her son, will most certainly die if he attempts to do what he's been asked to. And he'll certainly die if he doesn't do it. Exactly, and so she does what she has to do to, to take care of him. Yeah. And but because of the uh, the the group that she's been placed placed into, the group that supports the Dark Lord. You know, does that automatically just kind of make her this dark character, this bad character? Well, okay. So my thoughts on Narcissa Malfoy. Ever since I read the last book and have seen the last two movies, my thoughts on her sister Malfoy have always been that she was secretly... Okay, maybe she wasn't a total Dumbledore supporter, but she was secretly against all the evil that was being done by Voldemort and Death Eaters. Because, I mean, you see all this death and destruction around her, I mean, around in the magical world, and it's happening all around her, and her husband's highly ranked in this group who's doing all this you know, destruction, and um, and it's directly affecting her family, not just her immediate family, but her sister and her cousins, you know, and, you know, her son, and um, and I was just sort of wondering how into the whole uh, evilness that was going on, like, how, how much does she actually believe in it, but then, but then now I'm reading Half-Blood Prince, and there's a scene in uh, the robe shop where... This is a mock voice that's some, like, really weirdly evil things to Harry about, like, uh, like, Harry made some crack about how Draco and Lexus are going to be soon joining Lucius and Azkaban, and Lexus says, like, well, we're, you're going to be joining, you know, your dear Sirius far sooner than we're going to be joining, you know, my husband, and mm. I was not, I don't, I don't remember that line, I don't think it was in the movie, uh, and I was really surprised by that line because it seemed like a much more active thing for her to say, because my sister has always sort of been in the background. You know, she's always sort of been, like, you know, the pale blonde woman next, standing next to Sirius and looking very, or standing next to Lucius and looking very serious. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like she's, she's never really played, like, that much of an active role before. And then, so I just, I didn't really know what to make of that line and then also what to make of the fact, you know, her big action in Deathly Hallows, you know, well, which has, has been endlessly, endlessly debated by Harry Potter fans all over. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> well, you know, rather than saying that she was a supporter of Dumbledore and a supporter of, of that group, I think more so she she's the, she's the character that just wanted to get away from it. She just did not want to deal with it anymore. Yeah. She was. She's done. She's done with all of this, all of the lives that she's seen taken, the, her life and lifestyle that's been taken from her. 
her son who is being recruited for doing awful things, which maybe she doesn't think are, you know, like, like you said, she says to Harry, well, you're going to be joining your godfather sooner than you think. You know, maybe she doesn't, she doesn't really care about kind of these other lives so much, but she cares about what's happening to her. Yeah. And, you know, lying to Voldemort, learning that her son is alive, and then as soon as she sees him, grabs her son by the hand, grabs her husband by the hand, and they just walk away from the whole thing. Yeah. So, I, I mean, maybe that does make her a great character. Yeah, she definitely falls into... I mean, she's definitely in the middle of that spectrum that we were talking about earlier about light to dark characters, and she's definitely gray. Because uh, just, I just, I just can't read her as well as I can read the other female characters. Well, the other characters in general. You know, most of them are pretty... I wouldn't say they're completely black and white, but they're, where their allegiance stands is a lot more easily you know, figured out. But with her, it's, she does so many things. I mean, she's on, she's on the bad side, but she's, a good, she's like a good character on the bad side. No. She's maybe, good. maybe she's not good in the same way. She's a good maybe character. She's not good in the same side. way. Like Hermione or McGonagall is good, but she has goodness in her. And I feel like she sort of gets stuck playing, you know, Lucius' wife. Which, I mean, why, you know, can you imagine being like uh, 18 year old Narcissa and your parents being like, well, girl, it's time for you to get married, you know? <laughs> I can totally see myself being like, yeah, I'll take, I'll take sexy Lucius Malfoy over there, sure. <laughs> sure, why not? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Little do I know, he's this abuse, verbally abusive. I mean, I, 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 I sort of wonder, like, what their marriage must be like. I mean, I guess I can figure it out, but, you know, I don't know, I just. I just wonder, I mean, how must, like, how is this guy, like, day to day, and how, like, does she deal with him, or is he actually nice to her? I mean, I doubt it. <laughs> I mean, I think what we're kind of thought to believe is that there's no such thing as laughter in the Malfoy household, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Like, that's sounds I Unless it's, like, sneering laughter at yeah. like, Muggleborn. <laughs> Muggles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't know magic. Uh, I mean, Malfoy Mansion, as depicted in Deathly Hallows Part 1, does not look like a happy place at all. Absolutely not. I mean, compared to, like, you it's know, like a marble. Pemberley. A, a marble beauty, that's what. <laughs> um, just cold and beautiful and majestic. But yeah, yeah. Not, no warmth and no love coming out of it. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> Pemberley, that's funny. <laughs> well, I think we can say that, you know, maybe... That Narcissa is kind of this, is this gray character. Yeah. Is she's, uh, she's on the Death Eater's side physically, but emotionally and goals-wise, it's, it's all about family protection, which yeah, I think which is... which is all Mrs. Weasley wants, too. Exactly. She's talking about mothers. Right, and, you know, thinking, we know that Molly Weasley's Bogart is seeing her family dead. Yeah. And I think Narcissus is exactly the same. Yeah. They have the same body. Totally. And Molly Weasley, the whole 
I mean, she's definitely Mother Bear. She's just, that's just what... So, you know, whenever I see Martha, Molly and Arthur Weasley together, you know what I always think of? <laughs> the sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond. <laughs> because I think their marriage is exactly like that TV show. Because he's, like, goofy, and, but well-meaning, kind of an idiot, but, like, smart when he needs to be. And she's, like, so, like, I wouldn't, like, not, I wouldn't say uptight, but she's very, like, um, well, she's a hardworking, like, she runs the household, she's kind of impatient, and she's always the one that's, like, like, um, always the one to sort of put his, like, goofiness in place to make sure that he's actually being, like, a father and not a friend. Uh, well, this sounds familiar. Sounds like Ron and Hermione. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ron is totally marrying his mother. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but interestingly enough, Harry's not marrying his mother. Because, I mean, Hermione, Hermione's a combination of Lily Potter and Molly Weasley. I mean, and McGonagall. And McGonagall. Just this amalgamation of... <laughs> All the best. Okay, if we want to tell people who are put on pedestals, it is Lily Potter. <laughs> yeah, or Lily, Lily Evans. Potter will be put on the pedestal. Absolutely, 110%. That woman is completely infallible. She's absolutely perfect. Except her one big flaw is that she married James' uh, father. Yes! <laughs> yes, that's her one huge flaw. Why do these perfect girls, or it's terrible that I'm saying these perfect girls, um, why would somebody who is so kind, smart, reason, reasonable, intelligent, why would she go for a douchebag like James Potter? I mean, it's, it's the age-old question. I mean, do girls... Do all girls really want a bad boy? I mean... I think I might be... Am I the only one who does it? <laughs> you might be. <laughs> well, you and Janie Beasley, I guess. <laughs> if you think Harry Potter isn't a bad boy, then... <laughs> well, I mean, it, it depends on what you think of a bad boy. Because, like, for me, a bad boy is, like, James. And it's, like, bullying for the sake of bullying. And it has that, like, rough edge to him. I mean, Harry doesn't really have a rough edge. He definitely has, like, a good heart of kindness. I mean, he's definitely a, a kind, gentle person, like his mother. I mean, right. yeah, he does have his, like, rebellious side. No, absolutely. I would not I would not say he is that that James Dean bad boy for rebel, to rebel just for the sake of rebelling. No. Yeah. I would not say that uh, that's... I mean, it's, it's, see, I think Harry got the best quality of both parents. The looks and the... <laughs> 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 I mean, we all know that you think that Dana Radcliffe is the most attractive person ever. Since I was 12 years old. Since the time that we both, we both, meaning Daniel and I, not you and I. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways. Okay, Lily Evans is put on pedestal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's... Because Harry never learns about anything that his mother did wrong, right? Except kind of, you know, uh, uh, which we learn from Potter more, more so. Um, how even after James kind of upsets Lily's sister, he does. she doesn't do anything about it. She's kind of done with her family altogether. Yeah. So... 
you know. I mean, I, I guess maybe a flaw could be that maybe she was resented her family, and that, and she I so immersed herself in the magical world because that's where she only felt accepted. Well, no. What, what we learn from Pottermore is more that. So I'm not on Pottermore, so I'm not really familiar. Oh with what right, you're look about. at you. Look uh, at you not on no, Pottermore. No, it's just that. Like I was wanting to get on it, but then my friends like you have to like take all the ask like answer all these questions. You have to like wait until you're like it seemed very complicated. No, I haven't. Like, I'll just I haven't even been through sorting yet because I have a full time yeah. job and I don't have time. <laughs> I don't have eight hours to spend on Pottermore every day. And I'm afraid I won't get sorted into Hufflepuff, and then I'll have a huge identity oh, no. crisis. No. Um, <laughs> well, we learned that you know as soon as. Lily got into Hogwarts. Her parents just sort of fawned all over her, and they forgot about Petunia. Yeah. So, I think more so... I mean, you always want approval from the source that you don't have it. So, I don't think Lily ever really stopped trying to get Petunia back until she kind of married James and started fighting for good in the world and had Harry. Yeah, I... I think I agree with you. I just don't... I mean, Lily Potter just don't know that much about her. I mean, except for these little minute, small details. But even those aren't really enough to get a full three-dimensional character. I mean, was... Do you think Lily Potter was a a know-it-all like Hermione is? Do you think she was, you know, always trying to talk people out of doing bad things? Or I think that she had the same moral compass as Hermione. We get that when we have those scenes between Snape and Lily together. Yeah. Interestingly enough, though, um, even though Louis always defended Snape, he was not, he did not show her any respect. No. And he may have loved her. I mean, we know he did, but he calls her the, the M-word. <laughs> <laughs> the M-word. Of all the bad <laughs> words we've said in this podcast, we will never say that one again. <laughs> I mean, if that's the vicious insult that we're hearing it is, then that, I don't think a man in love with a woman would ever call her that. I mean... Unless you're Fitzwilliam Darcy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Fitzwilliam Darcy is... I don't know. He's, he's, he's a character. I mean, he's great. <laughs> but... I would go for Wickham, totally. Oh, stop it. <laughs> okay. So anyway. you do. Getting you back, getting back to the You're series. Basically, basically <laughs> Lydia Bennett. Oh my god. If only. Uh, all right, getting back to getting back to the topic at hand. When we think about women who have power. And women who seek power. Umbridge is Umbridge is one of them. You yeah. Know, she obviously has a position of power in the ministry and obviously at Hogwarts. And we see where it led her, ultimately to her demise. Oh no, I mean she's not um I don't she actually didn't die from the centaur. I mean she makes her No no no, and... she's but what I mean is is Oh, demise and power. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Sorry. Um I mean, even though she still has a whatever role at the ministry, she's obviously doesn't... It, it doesn't show that her pursuit of power and her her handling of the power that she did have does not end 
does not exactly put her in the best light. Right. Right. And and then we also have the whole story of Helena Ravenclaw. Oh, I love Helena Ravenclaw. And how her pursuit of power le- led to her death. <laughs> but it also led to the Bloody Baron's death because he murdered her in a fit of rage because she wouldn't go with him. Well, she wouldn't go back to England with him and she wouldn't love him. So he killed her. And then, but then spent all of his ghost life in penance. I mean, that's why he's always so solemn. And he's, I think he's in, they show him in chains and bloody too, right? I think so. You sort of have this pursuit of power resulting in death and destruction. And I mean, that's what I want to ask. That's something we see through the entire series. It's very obvious with Voldemort. Like, we Yeah, know, because know. if you think about it, both Voldemort and Helena Ravenclaw use the diadem as a means of furthering themselves past, I would say, human knowledge and power. You know what I mean? Like, Voldemort uses it to have this, like, inhumane immortality, and Helena uses it as a means to achieve this intelligence that even surpasses her mother. And if we're supposed to believe that Rowena Wavenclaw is literally the most intelligent witch in the history of the world, then for Helena to want to exceed that is almost, But, you know. I think that the thing is, is that why not continually reach for... Uh, exception. Like, why not continually work towards... But I don't think these characters... I mean, I don't think Helena Ravenclaw or Voldemort is exceed, is trying to exceed themselves out of thirst for knowledge so much. It's just, it's just a way of, um, you know, fluffing their pride, almost. You know, like, for example, I don't think that Helena Ravenclaw's pursuit of knowledge and power comes from an actual desire to obtain it, but as a way of showing up her mother, you know, like fighting okay. from her, you know, mother's shadow. Hmm. And same for Voldemort. I mean, he's not trying to learn about Horcruxes just to learn about it. He wants to use it as a means to, you know, bring more evil in the world. That's interesting, because, you know, on the, I think on a very, well, clearly on a very simple level then, how I was thinking about it just, you know, two minutes prior... It just makes it seem like that. This pursuit of knowledge and power can never lead to good things. But then, when you think about, you know, someone like Harry, who, in in his quest for finding himself, bettering the lives of, bettering his life and bettering the lives of people around him, he gains these, you know, physical, <laughs> these literal physical elements of power, right? He gains the Deathly Hallows. Right. But not in that, but not in the way that, you know, he would, that he would bastardize them. Exactly. And and actually, this is brought up in the very first book when we have the Mirror of Erised, and it has the Philosopher's Stone Hidden? Yeah, yeah, oh my god, that's such a good connection. Right, yeah, that's, um, right then we see that for somebody who just seeks it and doesn't want to use it, that's the person who's going to find it. I mean, I mean, let's talk about Hermione, too, because she's always, you know, seeking to learn. 
I don't think that her desire for knowledge comes from a prideful place. I think it comes from a genuine, you know, thirst for knowledge and, you know, maybe an excitement about the world that she lives in and she wants to learn more about it. I think that comes from, and that's the same thing with Harry. I mean, he, he succeeds in getting the stone only because, you know, he genuinely wants the better of the world. He doesn't want to use it, you know. Right. So I, um, he just, I, yeah, that's, that's, this is, this is all very profound, I think. I, yeah, I'm very surprised. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I think using Harry and Hermione to contrast, you know, Helena Ravenclaw and Voldemort, too, uh, is a, uh, I think that's a good contrast, because the, both of them get, both Harry and Hermione sort of attain the goals that the other two wanted, but... They obtain them without trying to obtain them, I guess. No, it's it's not about, for them it's not about winning, right? Yeah, if, yeah, it's about genuine, for, it's like genuine luck and genuine, you know. A lack of hubris, a lack of... A lack of hubris, mm-hmm. yeah. Speaking of uh, Helena Ravenclaw, do you want to hear some movie trivia that you maybe already know? Okay. But uh, I was, I read, I found this out when I was doing some research on her. Um, so Kate Winslet's agent was received the offer for her to play Helena Ravenclaw. Okay. But he turned it down without well, I don't I don't know who her agent is, but he or she turned it down without even consulting Kate Winslet because he thought that she wouldn't wanna be just another British actor in just another Harry Potter movie. <laughs> and then I don't know the repercussions from that because I don't know if she ever was like, Oh my god, I can't believe it. Because, I mean, Harry Potter is Harry Potter. I mean, yeah, billion oh dollar franchise Who? that always gets good reviews. And, you know, all the other British actors are like Oscar winners and Tony winners and Emmy yeah. winners. Like, there's a very steamed group of people. So, I, I mean, I just wonder what it would be like if Kate Winslet were in it. I, mean, I think she would have been pretty good. I think so, too. And, and her and Professor Trelawney could have had a little sense and sensibility <laughs> get well, together. Um, interestingly enough, the actress who plays. Helena Ravenclaw is Kelly McDonald, and she was just in Brave, and uh, Emma Thompson played her mother. <laughs> Look at this. Yeah. <laughs> Look at these connections we're making. Oh, and then um, the actress who plays Mrs. Weasley plays a witch in Brave also. Really? Yeah. Cool. I think there's another person in the Harry Potter who was in that, who was in that movie, but I can't remember who it was. Hmm. But, yeah, so, I mean, I mean, obviously these are all British actors, like, United Kingdom actors. Yeah. This is awesome. They always pop up in this part. <laughs> <But> <laughs> That's great. Um, I feel like being in Harry Potter is like a, matri- it's like a fraternity. You know? It's totally a You're fraternity. You're always connected. And like, perhaps there's a sorority <laughs> yeah. aspect to it as well. Hmm? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope everybody enjoyed this conversation. I, I think did. I think we'll end up coming back to it a couple of times, numerous times over. Yes, for sure. Over, I mean, I, I, mean I love talking about gender roles. Yeah, and I think that I think we came up with a couple new ideas today as well. Yeah. Which is which is exciting for us. Yeah. Uh, but totally. All of you should find us on Twitter. Our handle is. At C.T. Godric Hollow. Yes, and we will be tweeting uh, thoughts, and you can tweet at us. 
I also find our Facebook page. Oh, right. Coffee Talk at Godric's Hollow. Yeah. That should be easy enough. Uh, uh, and yeah. please, uh, you know, disagree with us. Tell us why. <laughs> I mean, agree with us. But, <laughs> you know, and tell us why. But if, And if you disagree with us, tell us why. And we we hope to be getting, you know, listeners' questions and things. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, Eventually. this is as much an interactive podcast as it is a conversational podcast. Right. If that made sense, I don't think it does. <laughs> I, hope, I hope our entire podcast made sense, because who knows if it did or didn't. <laughs> right. I, well, anyway, have a, I hope you had fun, and, and uh, thanks for listening. Have a fantastic week. Yes, we'll see you next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye.